So, a rock, a sentient plant, and a Jedi bookworm walk into an abandoned space station in the middle of nowhere. Wait, does the rock walk? Is the space station abandoned? In this episode, we dive into Claudia Gray's Into the Dark and answer all these questions and more. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this episode where we're talking all about Claudia Gray's Into the Dark. I really liked your joke at the top end. You wrote it, so (laughs) you can get the credit. (laughs) There's really no punchline. It was just a fun combination of things from (laughs) the book. We workshopped it together. Yeah, yeah, we totally did. I am really excited to be talking about a new Claudia Gray book. It's been a while, and it's always a good day to talk about Claudia Gray. (laughs) (laughs) I need that on a sticker. Yeah, I've been thinking about that rhyming thing like all day. So I really was looking forward to saying that because I really feel it in my bones. Whenever we can talk about a new Claudia Gray book, like, oh, man, it's 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 really good for the Star Wars community. (laughs) She's a queen. She is. She is. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about this addition to the High Republic. And this is our third book, right? That's out yeah. for the High Republic. And mm-hmm. we had Light of the Jedi first. And now we've got Into the Dark. We're just rolling along. And I'm really enjoying the High Republic so far. I am too. I actually have dived into the comic series too, which I really enjoy and I highly recommend it. There's some really interesting things that are going on with Skier right now. And it's really cool. I really like how it's written. And there's some really interesting characters, as is true for basically every single High Republic edition. Mm-hmm. And I'm just really enjoying all the crossover elements that don't feel gimmicky, but instead feel like a larger story. And it's kind of a joy to have this right now in Star Wars. It feels sort of under the radar. And even though I know it is like the, like the number one bestseller on the New York Times list and things like that, but it does feel like this super cool thing that's happening in the Star Wars fandom right now that. I don't feel like enough people are talking about, and I feel like as the phases get fleshed out even more, it's going to become even more beloved. Yeah, I think you're completely right. And I think one of the interesting things you mentioned was about like these crossovers not feeling gimmicky, because right, that's the conversation we have all the time about Easter eggs and mm-hmm. things like that. And what are they trying to do here by bringing in such and such character, such and such place? And here it's like, oh, that's they're trying to. They want to. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and you're right. It gives it such like a different – like you're looking out for those things more because they add a different kind of depth to the story. Not saying that, you know, crossovers and Easter eggs and other installments of Star Wars don't add depth, but I think you guys get it. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like with these phases and reading them basically in release order, it does feel like we're barreling towards like the next big event that's going to happen in the High Republic era. Like, yes, we're dealing with the great disaster in the very beginning. And I felt like during this book, I was on the edge of my seat waiting for the moment that I knew that like we would get to the parts that I am aware of that happened concurrently in the other parts of the High Republic because I want to find out what happens next. And I'm looking for all these hints about what's going to happen next. And we're going to talk about those and how we feel about this book and everything in this episode. And I'm really excited. But I just wanted to kind of start here in this intro by talking about how much I'm really enjoying The High Republic. And this is going to be a spoiler-filled discussion. We've already talked about that, I guess. We probably should have put it at the front. But I feel like 
I really recommend it. I recommend all of the material. I still haven't checked out A Test of Courage, but I think I'm going to do that this weekend. I keep saying that. I feel like I shouldn't really say that, as, <laughs> but I really am looking forward to it. And then I will be almost fully caught up on all of the High Republic releases. Yeah, I got the audiobook of Test of Courage, so I just haven't listened to it yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm going to try and check out the comics soon because it would feel cool to be like, I've read it all so far. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I still need to read the IDW comics as well because there's kind of two comic books happening right now there's the official marvel ones and then there's the official idw ones and one is written by kevin scott i believe and then the other one is written by daniel jose older which both those authors we love them so (laughs) i just haven't gotten to that yet but i definitely will i'm i think i'm gonna read everything that the sun touches when it comes to the high republic at this point because i am invested i honestly didn't think i was going to be like that in the beginning even when this project was teased but i'm just having fun with it so i might as well ride this line i guess yeah i think you're right these are all of our like favorite star wars authors like kevin scott daniel jose older claudia gray they're our faves (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) it's fun and there's, again, we've talked about this before on our Light of the Jedi episode, but their excitement is so infectious. Mm. And Daniel Jose Older's TikTok, TikTok. presence right now is like mm. so good. So good. <laughs> and I, it's so good. I love it. I think that that kind of excitement from creators just makes me really excited. So yeah, I'm enjoying it. All right. Are we ready to dive in? Yes, let's do it. So in part one, we're going to be talking about our first impressions. Part two, deeper themes. Part three, we're going to give each other quotes and react to them. So without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first? All right. Welcome to part one, where we're kind of going over first impressions and thoughts and feels of the book. So Charlotte, what did you think of Into the Dark? I really enjoyed it. I feel like Claudia is such a master at character development, at sense of place. I feel like there were so many things that I loved about this book. Like I really loved the act of reading it. But I really think that Claudia is really great at grounding and creating a true sense of place in her stories. I always feel like I know where I'm at. And I feel like that's kind of tough in a Star Wars book where in the movies, in the TV shows, there's so much that relies on visuals. And that's a huge part of Star Wars. I think everyone knows that. So when it's translated to a book and it's often a place that we've never even seen before in Star Wars, it's a challenge for me to get sucked in. And Claudia Gray is totally able to do that for me. And I'm always like immediately enraptured by her characters. I loved Wreath. And we're going to talk about all the characters, I think. But I was a huge fan. (laughs) And I feel like when I started this book, I was really excited. And I like blew through the first like 25%. And then the middle, I got kind of like, I don't know what's going on. And then towards the end, it was one of those books that I couldn't put down. And I feel like that's actually a a lot of the time with Star Wars books for me. I get really excited in the beginning. And then I I don't know, I sort of like, I'm like, okay, like, let's move on. Like, where's the climax of the story? (laughs) And I feel like that was my experience with Into the Dark. I I really enjoyed it. I even liked the subplot that happened at a different time period. Sometimes I was like, not really sure what we were doing there because we did kind of flashback there a lot. But in the end, I really appreciated it. And I don't know. I feel like I really understood a lot of the characters' motivations and what they were going through. I think that Claudia is like so good at like establishing a character voice too. So I really liked it. In terms of like my favorite Claudia Gray books, it's it's really not close to 
Lost Stars for me or Bloodline or even Leia Princess of Alderaan, but that doesn't mean anything because <laughs> Claudia Gray <laughs> is still my favorite Star Wars author and yeah. she just writes Star Wars so well. And I could talk about this book with her for a really long time, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed Into the Dark. You've kind of hit all the highlights for me. The character development really shines in this book. And that was, I don't want to say critique we had of Light of the Jedi, because Light of the Jedi had a different job than Into the Dark of like setting up this world. But Light of the Jedi didn't have a ton of character development, in my opinion. And so I think reading this book, which I just felt was like full of character development and like really establish these characters more than what we saw in Light of the Jedi was really fun for me because you guys know we're character people first and foremost. <laughs> like <laughs> I'll forget the name of the planet where we go nine times out of 10, but I'm here for whatever angst and internal tribulations these characters have. Yeah. That's my, my favorite thing. So I really loved all of these characters. I love Reef so so much i love the journey he goes on in this book i think it's really meaningful in just this one book kind of the growth that you can see from him from beginning to end i think it was really incredible and i always love claudia's exploration of the force i think it's so what's the word it's so nuanced how she talks about it like light of the jedi was really great in the sense that it explored how all these different people visualize the force all these different jedi and that's not something we really got in into the dark but in mm -hmm. into the dark we got more of how these jedi actively think about the force and how they view it in relation to the jedi which i think is just another really important shade on this whole conversation of the force during the high republic era like i felt like light of the jedi and into the dark really built off of each other in that sense and so I think it just it went together really well. I will say the only thing that I am kind of on the opposite end of is the flashbacks. I thought we didn't spend enough time in the flashbacks. And I kind of thought that we should have had more time after. Now I can't remember their names. <laughs> but the climax of the flashbacks, basically, when one of the rulers of those planets sacrifices themselves for the queen. Yeah. I kind of thought we should have spent a little bit more time in the aftermath of that moment as opposed to the buildup to that moment. But I really enjoyed it nonetheless. I kind of wanted more time with that leader, personally. I think she's a really compelling character. But I'm glad that that was like a parallel for Orla and Comac in the present timeline. So I enjoyed that piece of it. But I do kind of wish we had spent more time in that flashback period, particularly in the aftermath of that event that kind of shaped Orla and Comac. I think that's interesting because I definitely agree with that. And I think that could have been used better. I think yeah. that when the event happened, I was like, oh, okay, I need to like restructure how I was thinking whatever we were building to was going to be. I don't know if I realized that it was going to be basically an impulsive accident that we were building to. But yeah. I think that if I reread the book, I would have seen that that's what we were going to. So I was surprised by that. And I think I'm with you that I definitely would have liked some aftermath. But maybe the point of the book is that Comac is still dealing with the aftermath of that. You know, I feel like the focus should be on the characters that we're, we have in the present, not necessarily characters we have in the past. So I get that. But I'm with you. I think I would have liked yeah. to see that too. The thing that was interesting about that whole kind of flashback narrative plotline 
is that it was Orla who kind of had who came away with that with the big I guess revelation about the mm-hmm. force and her relation and how the Jedi treat the force or approach the force versus how she felt she should have in that situation but it was Cormac who is still kind of Comac, I'm sorry. When I was writing the notes, I wanted to put an R in his name so bad. Every Same. time I typed it, I was like, is there an R in here? No. Well, I feel like that's the, that's the Star Warsification of the name. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, make it slightly different. <laughs> a little bit. But it was Comac, like you've said, who was still kind of really dealing with the repercussions of that. I mean, they both were, but Comac, I think, is definitely the more emotional of the two, surprisingly, even though he's the one that's still the quote-unquote normal Jedi, not a way seeker, I guess I should say. Yeah. So what was your favorite part of the book? I think there's a number of aspects that I really loved, but I think that when we were introduced to those Sith idols, like dark side idols, I was like, whoa, this book is going there. (laughs) And I think that anytime, you were right before when you said that anytime Claudia can talk about the Force and give room for exploration of like how the Force works, and how it doesn't work too. I think that that's like a big proponent of this book is like questioning if they're using it right or like even if using it is right at all and uh, how the dark side of the force even operates or the division of the force itself. Like it's just interesting. And I think that Star Wars books are so cool because they give us an opportunity to explore these things in this way, in a nuanced way that perhaps the movies or the TV shows haven't necessarily done because we get this sort of like internal monologue that we don't necessarily get in the visual form. And I feel like that any time that was brought up, that was my favorite part. But honestly, I think that everyone knows that like the coolest part about this book was the sentient plants and then Geode. Like, let's be honest. Geode. <laughs> <laughs> I love Geode. <laughs> Geode is like, when he was introduced, I was like, okay, this is great. Only Claudia could get away with this because this yeah. is so weird. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, does he actually do anything? What is going on? I felt like I was being like questioning everything every time Geode was like brought into the, the story. I was like, how is he going to fit in? And then in the final moment when Geode does help Wreath, I was like, all right, I knew this was going to happen in some form, you know? But was, he's still, the action or speech is, like, still never written. It's yeah, just, it's, it's, it's so still cool. like, wait, what happened? Did Geode actually, <laughs> what, or was that Wreath himself, you know, realizing his own power, his own, like, I don't know. I think that Geode is great. And, like, there's something about, like, the act of, like, questioning a bunch of stuff when you're reading that's so powerful. And, while Geode was a comedic relief and like really funny and I loved his inclusion, honestly, I feel like there was something really fun happening that hadn't really happened in like any other Star Wars book that I can think about where you're reading and you're like, okay, am I supposed to laugh? Am I supposed to take this seriously? Because the characters are taking it seriously, but not all of them. So <laughs> which characters am I trusting here? There was like something on, a, on another level that was happening that was interesting about this character and the the inclusion of the character because it's not random right it's like okay so you can think about even geode sort of representing like do wreath and the jedi trust like this whole other group of people that they're suddenly in close quarters with when they're stuck on this place because they seem to trust geode so should they also trust geode what even is this (laughs) is this wreath kind of dipping his toes into what the quote-unquote frontier is and you just have to be accepting of what's around you, I suppose. It's just interesting. It was great. 
I think you took Geode way deeper than I did. I I thought that Geode was just like this really fun addition. Like with Geode, I could almost see it kind of playing out like a sitcom. Like you have this group of people like new to town, right, arrive at the ship and the people are like, oh, here's our pet rock. He's he's the co-pilot. And the new people are like, are they crazy? Like what? That's a rock. That's a rock. And then by the time, like throughout the whole book, slowly they all just become, they're like, oh, now I get it. Like we're all suddenly in on the joke. And then when the next Jedi come in, Wreath is like, oh, this is Geode. He's the co-pilot. And the Jedi is like, that's a rock. And he's like, don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's exactly what. Like, I think we're saying the same thing. Is I think we are, too. It's about, like, okay, letting someone in on the joke or yeah. is is equal to letting someone in, right? Yeah. So it's just interesting. And to your point, too, is that Reef even kind of comments on it about, like, trusting people who aren't Jedi, who, who they're now in these close quarters with. Reef makes a comment at some point in the book where he's like, the Force got us through this. And then he's like, well, no, Afi and Leox and Geode got us through this. Is that the force? Like, he kind of has that questioning of, they don't use the force, so mm-hmm. who got us through this kind of thing. So I think you're right. What were your some of your favorite parts of the book? I really love the characters. It kind of felt like a cross between Last Shot and Bloodline as far as the tone, because it definitely had that kind of Scooby-Doo murder mystery vibe to it with the ship, but on a much darker level, I think, with not quite the same kind of comedy that Last Shot has. So I really liked the tone of it. I loved exploring this ship. I thought that was really great. Of course, the sentient plants were so creepy. I remember when Claudia was talking about Into the Dark at the kind of launch event for the High Republic, the virtual one they did last month, and she was talking about the sentient plants. And Charlotte and I both have a lot of plants, so like we like plants, but I'm going to look at my Monstera plant like a little differently tonight. It's <laughs> that. Yeah. The monster, the Monstera. Yeah. Yeah. I, I loved the description of the plants of, you know, they're laughing. It's just the rustling of leaves and they kind of like whisper and the vines are venomous. And I don't know. I just, and like they grow as they're moving, but their movement is gross. So they're getting bigger. I thought it worked really well. I loved kind of the twist of, you know, thinking that the dark side was imbued within the idols, but Mm -hmm. the idols were actually keeping the sentient plants dormant. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really great. And and I love the characters of this book. I'm obsessed with Reef. I kind of love them all (laughs) in very (laughs) different ways. Like usually there's a pretty standout character for me, but I would die for all of them, quite honestly. (laughs) So... (laughs) I really loved all of them. I thought, like I said at the top end, I thought that Wreath had such a great character journey. Like looking at him in the beginning where he's kind of not thinking about things in a very Jedi way and he's kind of judgy to other people. But you see him kind of walk through these conversations in his head of like, especially when they first run into Non's ship, when they see Non's ship coming and they're like, oh, we got to go rescue her. And he's like, oh man, like they must be so poor. Look at that ramshackle ship. And then he backtracks on himself and he's like, wait, that's not right of me to think that. Like, they're doing the best they can. And that's like a good way. Like, he shouldn't have been judging in the first place. But then the fact that it all comes back around of like, no, she's with the Nile. It's supposed to look like that. And he's like, oh, shoot. <laughs> um, so I really enjoyed that. And, and I just think that his understanding of the force throughout the whole book 
was really cool. And of course, everything with his master Jorah and then Dez and kind of understanding how everyone has this different relationship to the Force. And he's definitely that bookworm who wants things to be very black and white in the world. And, you know, talking about like, well, the frontier is good for some people, but like, I just want Coruscant to be where I am. And like, I just want that for me. Like, this is where I see myself thriving is on Coruscant. <laughs> and Jorah is like, no. <laughs> it's time to get you out of your comfort zone. Exactly. And he's like, but why? You know, why do you have to do that? You don't, like, you need Jedi here on Coruscant, don't you? <laughs> and I just think that he felt very relatable to me in that kind of young adult stage of life. We talked about this a lot with Kaz, actually, from Resistance of that relatableness of kind of transitioning into this new phase of life. And I, I felt that Wreath was very much the same. And, mm -hmm. you know, him having the goodbye party with his friends and then, you know, eventually going back for Nan at the end of the book before he realizes who she's really associated with. Like, I think that's such growth and like going against the council in that sense. And I don't know, I, I really loved his character. I thought he was really well done. And I'm excited to see what happens next for him. I feel like this is no surprise to me because when I, I read this before you did, and I feel like I was like so excited for you to read Wreath because I feel like this is probably who you would be if you were a Jedi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I feel like, well, the archival nerd, the like huge fan of history. And I like how that there was this sort of similarity between obviously between Comac and Wreath also in this like interest in history and I liked how that was pretty underscored throughout the entire book about the importance of understanding different cultures and studying that and creating a record of it an archive of it I thought that was really cool because yeah again this is just like it speaks to how great Star Wars books are is that there's really this room to explore all these different things that we never explored in the movies, which for reasons, of course, there's no time to do that. The characters aren't doing that. And I think that it's clear that a huge goal of the High Republic is to explore all these different ways the Jedi can access the Force and that, especially during this time period, that it wasn't this like rigid, almost dogmatic way that they view the Force as like one goal one thing i feel like for me when i watch the prequels i think that these jedi knights are all learning the same all trying to tap into the force the same and are learning the same poses with a lightsaber and things like that and all that is true in the high republic as well but they dive in deeper about there's all these different ways to explore being a jedi and it's just something i never really thought about in the prequel era I was always like, well, the Jedi must be so jealous that Anakin is like the star Jedi, you know, that he is the strongest in the force and all these things, you know, and I always was like, I wonder what all the other like hundreds of Jedi think about Obi-Wan, Anakin and Ahsoka getting all the cool missions and everything. <laughs> and the truth is, is that there's Jedi who do a bunch of other stuff. And I'm not saying that they haven't fully explored that in the prequels and the Clone Wars, because of course they have with even librarian Jedi like Jocasta New and things like that. But it's definitely not on this level and by diving deep into like even just how people hear the force and how they use their time as like there's even a conversation in this book about how 
yeah, Leox thinks that he is bringing a group of monks essentially around. And I love that they basically, <laughs> Claudia was like, no, we have to talk about the fact that the Jedi are monks, right? Yeah. Like, we're going to talk about this. And they did. And I thought that was great because it, t- it gave the characters a chance to be like, yeah, that's true. But like, we also do all this other stuff. We have all these different goals. And right now our goal is this and <laughs> all these different things. And I just feel like it, it, there was never really room to do that in the movies for one reason or another. Yeah, I think there is a difference, though, between the Jedi we see in the second trilogy versus what we see here in the High Republic. And that, Absolutely. You know, obviously, we're leading to something with the High Republic that's going to be a pretty big shift for the Jedi and the Jedi Order and how they conduct themselves. And you're right, like, in the second trilogy era, there's Jocasta Nu, who is an archive or a librarian, and there are mm-hmm. different roles and stuff. But it's still, I think it's still more restrictive than what it is now. Like, maybe we should just start talking about Orla and the fact that she is a wayseeker. Like, what is that? The coolest freaking thing ever. When this was introduced, I was like, this what? changes everything. Right? This is a game changer. <laughs> we finally have a name. And it's not a Grey Jedi, by the way. It's just a different exploration of the Force. It's a solitary exploration of the Force. It's so cool to me <laughs> that there's this opportunity. I don't even think Wayseeker is another name for Grey Jedi Mm-mm. in the way that we think about Grey Jedi. It's not. It's not. And I'm. that's what I'm trying to say is that like I think that sometimes the internet likes to uh, make things out of nothing. I just think that it's an interesting pathway to exploring the forest that we just didn't have a name for before. It's so cool. And I feel like this might be what Ahsoka was trying to do or is trying to do right now. You never know like where this is going to come up again. Yeah, I think here, let me read the quote about the Wayseekers. So Orla describes being a Wayseeker as a Jedi who would operate independently of the dictates of the Jedi Council. Some Jedi from time to time found themselves drawn to a period of solitary action, whether that meant meditation on a mountaintop, helping revolutionaries on a tyrant-ruled world, or even in one legendary instance, becoming a minor singing sensation on Alderaan. All paths could lead to a deeper understanding of the Force. I think this is so interesting because this is not something that I think is really prevalent in the second trilogy era. I say that, but then I'm like, Quinlan Voss is kind of out there. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It's like, you're like, oh, this isn't in, in our face because it's not. But there definitely are Jedi in the second trilogy era who oh have. Ex- I know. You're I think welcome. This is the first time. Wow. <laughs> wow. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> anyway, who have explored this. Like, we've seen Rail Avaros in Master and Apprentice and then Dooku Jedi Lost. I feel like he kind of embodies this in a weird way, like what he was doing yeah. by protecting princess fan ray and master and apprentice and everything like that that feels like a mission I, I don't even think they gave it this name but it was written by claudia gray so i think that she probably had this in mind it was an extended mission like a long period of time and he yeah. was fully separated from the jedi to the point of you know there were cracks in the foundation there <laughs> and I, that's what made his character <laughs> really interesting to me but i think that Maybe he would have called it that, even though if he wouldn't necessarily be adhering to this as so spiritually as Orla might. Yeah, I just I think it's so fascinating because they write that it's someone who operates independently of the dictates of the Jedi Council, which even with Rael and Quinlan Voss does not feel like that is as okay as it is in this time period with Orla. Uh, I think obviously Jedi like Quinlan Voss and Rael have, Quinlan Voss more, have like a certain amount of independence, but 
we hear just over and over again in the prequel era about, you know, it's not what the council wants, particularly from Obi-Wan and Anakin because they're our main characters. But, you know, th- we have to get it approved by the council. Like, what would the council say? Council this, council that. And Orla, like, a wayseeker kind of feels like someone who has their cake and eats it too, gets all of the good training and, I guess, prestige that comes along with being a Jedi, but then doesn't have to do the things that other Jedi do. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I would like to be a (laughs) wayseeker if I were a Jedi. I'd like to be like Wreath, but a wayseeker, I think. Yeah, I'm just kind of not confounded by them, but very interested in how many wayseekers there are. Are they like the pre-Lost 20? You know, is it the way of saying, like, if you're not going to be a traditional Jedi, we don't want to say that you quit, so we're going to call you a wayseeker. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because I feel like Wreath is even kind of dubious of this concept himself. But the way he reflects on it is kind of like, well, look at them go, you know? And he's like, I've heard all these things, but I don't know if I really buy it is kind of the vibe that you get. And to me, it was sort of like a modern day, like looking at like the hippie version of Jedi, you know, like look at them go. That's yeah, they're, that's they're exactly free. It. They don't adhere to the rules like I do, but look at them go like free love, freedom. <laughs> and I feel like it, to me, the way stickers do, especially in this era and like introducing this concept in the beginning of this era really does sparkle like what you said about like, is this the pre lost 20? Like, what to me this represents is pure freedom, right? Is not necessarily following the rules. But also they do later, I just want to say, they do later say that like even though Wayseekers do have their own set of rules, their own like they have to adhere to protocols and things like that. So it's not necessarily like, you know, getting the training and then piecing out. In some cases, I suppose it is because the the example that Wreath uses is becoming a minor singing sensation on Alderaan, which is great. I love that. I just feel like it's it's interesting because for me this is a is not a concept that would be introduced in the second trilogy era. It would be a concept that is introduced here in order to show a downfall of something. And what are we peddling towards, you know, with this introduction? Yeah, I think that's one of the bigger points too of the Wayseekers of just how there's a lot more mobility it seems like for Jedi in this time period and they seem like even they seem way bigger in numbers than mm-hmm. we see in this in the second trilogy era. And I think it was Yarl Poof in Light of the Jedi who did that whole monologue about, you know, the Jedi Order has been a handful of people at a time or even more than we have now, you know, to kind of show that the Jedi Order fluctuates a lot, which I don't know how great that is, <laughs> but I guess it's just a part of its history, which I guess is true for kind of Every anything that's of history, been around yeah. for millennia and who knows really how long the Jedi have been around. It seems like everything was a millennia ago. Like no matter what time period you're in in the <laughs> in the Star Wars <laughs> universe, it's like, oh, two millennia ago this. And then the High Republic is like two millennia ago, such and such happened. It's like, okay, well, where's where's the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> Where do we really start this off? <laughs> I think that we should move on to talk about like I, I think Orla's awesome and I really like her character and I want to see more of her but I want to talk about Comac a little bit because I was kind of stumped by this character a little bit like in the beginning I wasn't sure what to think about him but I ended up really liking him and I like the idea that he's a folklorist and I also really liked the idea that he 
sort of really recognized his emotions and had this sense of reservation about even at the end of training wreath and like whether or not he would be the proper master for him. But I think that it, at the end, like we see that Komak is actually the perfect master for wreath uh, after what he had been through and what they had been through together. But I ended up really liking this character a ton because I liked his reflections on whether or not the force needed to be divided and what the dark side of the force was telling us. And it, it, it seemed more insightful than other Jedi at this time. Like people, it doesn't even feel like a lot of Jedi are even thinking about what it means to say we are all the Republic and what it means to say that we only lean towards the light and don't even really acknowledge the dark. Like what even is that? And they haven't even really come to that place in light of the Jedi they didn't even really discuss the dark side that much or even the Sith. And it's just interesting because I feel like Comac actually brought to the table a lot of that struggle. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, I think Comac as a character just has a lot of contradictions about him because he's the only person in this, I think, I could be wrong, but he's the only person that is kind of pushing the Republic propaganda. We don't hear him say we are all the Republic, but he's the one in the beginning who's like, oh, let's bring the Republic here. Or I think in the beginning, too, when they have the first like round of hooligans on the space station and he's like, you're going to answer to the Republic law here. (laughs) And he's very much the person like putting that front forward and that the Jedi are kind of representatives of the Republic in this time period. Which is interesting. And then I think to the comparison, like you were talking about, like he is very emotional, like his comparison to Orla, who is the one who kind of split off from the traditional path. But she seems to be the one that's having to encourage Comac in his Jedi teachings and like how to deal with grief and emotion. Whereas Comac is the more emotional one, even though he's kind of more staunchly in the Jedi order. I thought it was kind of interesting. And yeah, I think he has like really great reflections on the Jedi Order um, and the Force in general. I think it'd be good to read kind of what you referenced to about dividing the Force and how he thinks about it all. If you have the hardcover edition, this is page 128. And he's going into meditation here and he says, I behold the world within myself. He thought, I behold the world within myself. The mantra had helped soothe him for many years. He liked the balance of it. But it had become too literal now to serve as a mantra. I am a Jedi. I've always been one. It's my identity, one I've never sought to change. But the order doesn't answer the questions that linger within me. The questions only grow over time. Darkness abides on the station. It is too familiar to me now. But the shape it takes here is different and unsettling. Consciousness without a corporal being. What created this? How did the dark side take form in this place? How does the dark side take form anywhere? Sometimes I think we, the Jedi, must be somehow to blame. We who refuse to look at the Force in full to examine the darkness as well as the light. If the dark side was not so alien to them, Comac suspected, they would more readily understand the nature of the idols. How can we split the Force in two? How can we justify such an act of violence? And it is violence, such dividing, even the darkness divided from the light. And this feels like where we should have ended in episode nine. (laughs) (laughs) I hate to be that person. But at this juncture, right? Because it is a division and it's not balance. And this is what we were talking about in Light of the Jedi of they, I think, like you said, Charlotte, they don't even reference the dark side once, let alone the Sith. Whereas here, the dark side is the plot device, I guess, <laughs> with these with these sentient plants. And 
he says, you know, if they understood the dark side, they would understand the nature of the idols. And that's true. They would understand that the idols aren't actually the dark side here if they only knew how to approach it. And it's that kind of, I guess, comfort level that the Jedi have during this era. And Land of the Jedi references this too about how the Jedi are well known throughout the galaxy and people like view them as heroes. And that is something we really start to see degrade with a lot of characters that we come into contact with in the Clone Wars time period. And I just, yeah, his kind of emotional turmoil over everything that's going on while still wanting to be a part of the Jedi, I think is really fascinating. And he's also the one too, which I thought was really great when they're talking about the idols and kind of force imbued artifacts. He's like, don't just think that these are Sith or Jedi artifacts. Like there are many other force users around the galaxy. And that got me really excited. I hope we get to see other Force users (laughs) throughout the galaxy. But I think I enjoyed his reflections on the Force. And I think he and Wreath seem like an obvious pair, especially at the beginning of the book, of like both being bookworms and folklorists and interested in history and stuff, and really seem to go together even at the end. And knowing that they're both kind of thinking about these things of what should my relationship to the force look like and then how should that be imparted to the people I come in contact with and what is my role in the Jedi I think will be really fascinating going forward. I had a little bit of a different read about this part on page 128. I I agree with everything that you say but I just kind of wanted to go through this and let you know what I kind of thought about it. Oh no thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I thought the mantra that he he talks about, you know, he says, I behold the world within myself. I behold the world within myself. The mantra had helped soothe him for many years, but it had become too literal now to serve as a mantra. For me, I viewed this entire passage when he talks about, I've always been one. It's my identity to be a Jedi. I've never sought to change, but the order does not answer the questions that linger within me. The questions only grow in time. Darkness abides in the station. It is too familiar. The shape it takes is different and unsettling consciousness within without a corporal being i know we just read this but i wanted to repeat it how does the dark side take form in this place i sort of read this as comac kind of understanding you know when you become an adult i think that you only ask more questions i think that as a child you think i'll have it all figured out when i'm older and but the truth is is that you learn more and more and you question more and more and things that you often viewed as good actually are evil things that you have surrounded yourself with that are, you know, that you think are good. (laughs) Sometimes you're like, wait, but I have turned a blind eye into everything that is bad. And I think that for me, this passage was Comac being like, how can we just turn our cheek towards everything that is evil, everything that is bad without acknowledging it and only focus on the good? For me, this is like an acknowledgement of like, for lack of a better term, like toxic positivity for like surrounding yourself with and like only pointing to the light and never really acknowledging the dark, only pointing to the good and never really being like, no, actually, like, as you know, when he questions, like, who created this? How is the dark side in the form? Sometimes I think we, the Jedi, must be somehow to blame. I think about like, are we humanity to blame for the world's evils? And the truth is, is that yes. And I, I know that that's like almost. It sounds like really heavy to talk about, but I think that's like what Star Wars is always trying to get at is if the dark side is 
you know, the bad. And yes, I think that we all have evil and badness within us and we have to continuously make choices that kind of point us in, in that direction. But the act of choosing versus just going towards that way and not even acknowledging that the choice is being made is pure ignorance and naivety, you know? And I think that that to me, that's what made Comax like this part so interesting is that there was this real reflection about like, how do I actually become a better person? How do I acknowledge like everything that is around me without, you know, forgetting a whole half of it? Yeah. I mean, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's the exact opposite of Jorah, yeah. right? Like yes. I, I brought it, I, I brought it up. I pulled out the book, the physical book, this passage that we spent a good bit of time with when we were covering the light of the Jedi. Actually, the, where she talks about Reith is right here. So maybe we should just read this real quick too. She writes, Reith was 17, a good student, but perhaps not entirely thrilled that he would soon follow his master to the Starlight Beacon instead of remaining on Coruscant. The frontier held little interest for him. Well, of course, Reith was in fact 17. No space station, no matter how exotic, could compare to the greatest city in the galaxy. That's kind of funny, given that there are like very exotic plants on <laughs> the space station they end up. Anyway, but to your conversation, which is more important about how Comac kind of is reflecting on the force and everything in it. And like you said, like toxic positivity or view of the Jedi, This it is what how Jorah views it, actually. And she says, this is on page 299 in Light of the Jedi, the hardcover edition, when it's the Jedi Council meeting. Jorah listened as the various council members presented their arguments. Great emphasis was placed on interpreting the will of the force listening to the voice of the Force, taking direction from the Force, and so on. Jorah found that a little tiresome, a philosophical vortex, which I think is kind of what Gomek is trapped in right now. For her, <laughs> it was very simple. The Jedi were deeply connected to the light side of the Force. Whatever choice any Jedi made was, therefore, the will of the Force. Study and focus allowed the Jedi to become better instruments of that will, certainly, in much the way that a well-maintained lightsaber functioned better than one that had fallen into disrepair. But getting caught up in an endless debate about what the Force might want was paralyzing, a waste of time. And then later on, she says she kind of makes the deciding vote for the council meeting. And she says she wished Wreath was here with her, thinking of the lesson he might learn here. She would have to pass it along to him later. Does the action I'm about to take bring light to the galaxy? She spread her hands. And then she basically says she does think it's going to bring light to the galaxy. And that's how she makes her choice. And yeah, this is the exact opposite of what Comac is thinking about right now. And uh, she doesn't get to teach that lesson to Reef because she ends up dying before she sees him again. And yeah, I think this is Comac is the one who's kind of on the right track here. Yeah, of, agreed. You know, like, like we were saying, like this, this should have been where we ended up at the end of the Skywalker saga of... You can't have this division because that's not balance. That's separation. And when you isolate these things from each other, light and dark, it's just going to implode. Yeah, I feel like there was a lot of heavy <laughs> topics that this book was dealing with in terms of like what the force even was and how does it interact and how does it move through people in this period and what the cosmic forces is and things like that. There's some mention of the cosmic force in this, and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I, I found Comac's character interesting, and I have to admit, I like Comac way more than Jorah. 
And I think that you're right in saying that I think that he really is the right teacher for Wreath at the end of this book. And I'm excited for more of his internal turmoil. Yeah, I agree. Do you mind if we just spend a second talking about the Jedi Temple? Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) I'm just so glad that Orla was like, let's go through some things. I know. I was like, this is so good. I, I think I texted you during this. I was reading it and you weren't. And I was like, I can't wait for you to read this. Like, oh my God, Claudia just gets it. And it was because the book references that the Jedi Temple was built on top of a Sith Temple. And the more times that Star Wars can acknowledge how crazy this is, <laughs> is the better it is. It's so good. Oh my God. It makes me so happy. <laughs> And, like, the fact that there was this whole narration of, like, walking down the steps that the Sith constructed. I was like, this is so cool. (laughs) An acknowledgement of this is, like, the neatest thing ever. And I think that even goes back to our conversation before is that before, honestly, like, in the prequel time, the second trilogy time, there was no acknowledgement of that. That's an obviously like in Star Wars canon, it's not new, but in the meta of today, it's new. So, like, of course, it's not. Uh, referenced but if you think about the story like it's not referenced it's not talked about at all it's not even talked about in the Clone Wars at least I think it's not and I feel like it's really interesting because that concept has it goes back really far by the way and yeah them integrating it here is like oh look there are Jedi who are actually acknowledging that the light sits on top of the dark and what does that mean and how is that eerie and how is that creepy and like what does that do to these Jedi's psyche because that's what's happening here when they're bringing these idols down it was it was so cool <laughs> it was really cool and the way that they talk about it as virgences it really does have this picture of balance right like this is the divide the divide is the door, basically, between Jedi Temple and Sith Temple. It's what Comac is talking about. But it's still balanced. So, like, they come packaged together, like this Jedi and Sith Temple, but they're blocked off from each other. Mm-hmm. And there's something, like, so cool about that. And this is, again, where we plug the audio drama Jedi Dooku Lost, whatever it's called. I can never get Dooku it Dooku Jedi Lost. <laughs> I just, you guys know what I'm talking about. Please, <laughs> if you haven't listened to it, it's such a fun ride by Kevin Scott. It's really good. And this is where they first kind of explore a little bit more in depth. I I think it's the first time anyway, of the Sith temple underneath the Jedi temple. And I was like, wow, this is so great. But what I think is great is that Orla, like you were saying, like, what is it doing to people's psyche at this time? And the fact that like, they're not even talking about the dark side when they're literally sleeping on top of the dark side is just (sighs) so crazy. It's so good. And (laughs) Orla says when they're going down there to deal with the idols, it's such like kind of it's like a creepy passage. And she says, few people knew that the Jedi Temple had been built on top of a Sith shrine, not a temple, a Sith shrine. I think that's there's a difference between those. I don't really know what the difference is here, but there's a difference. (laughs) And it says a virgins in the force existed there, a nexus of power and energy that could be put to many uses both worthy and wicked i think this is kind of like the like a like a nexus of the cosmic force almost because there's Mm -hmm. not a definition of it of light or dark side because this is probably like pure force here i guess like a if you want to describe it like that but it's when it's brought into these different quote-unquote organizations that it suddenly gets a label of good or bad virgins is rose of their own accord they could not be created only discovered in the far distant past of the Old Republic, back during the ancient Sith Empire, Sith and Jedi often warred for control of these virgences. The Sith had held this one first. 
maybe Orla thought the idols are coming home, which I thought was just like super eerie. <laughs> and then she actually writes after that. She goes, she was being melodramatic. <laughs> the Jedi had controlled this virgins for thousands of years, first through their own shrine, then through the construction of the temple. Still, it was the Sith who had carved the steps. Orla led the way down, holding up the hem of her white robes as she entered the darkened shrine. They were underground, and she could feel the damp coolness that forever permeated the space. The air even smelled of dirt. Relics and other objects strongly imbued with the dark side of the forest were taken there for- Oh, I thought this was crazy. (laughs) Relics and other objects strongly imbued with the dark side of the forest were taken there for purification. There, Orla would work with some of the great masters to strip the dark energy from the idols in that safe, sacred space. Strip the dark side of these idols inside the Sith shrine. Like- Isn't that a double negative? I don't know. Well, it reminds me of when Ahsoka turned the crystal white. Yeah. On a larger scale, though, I think that that, when you think about, like, kyber crystals and kyber crystal, you know, usage and things like that, I think that it's in the same, like, sphere of discussion. Yeah. Yeah. But I I would assume it's pretty similar because you, like, you bleed your soul into a kyber crystal and things like that. If you're you're bleeding it to be red, that, like, even the opposite action is that, you know? Yeah. It's just kind of taking it into this, because I'm sure the energy in the Sith Temple is oppressive, I would Mm -hmm. imagine. I don't know. But I think you're right. It's just, it's very interesting. But then it says, so once you strip the idols, it could sink into the virgins, dissipate into the cosmic force, and again, be made whole. Orla sighed as she thought. In theory, anyway, reality might be a whole lot more dangerous. Which I was like, is there like a like a Grand Canyon? Is this the Virgins or like a? I think I envisioned it almost like a geyser, <laughs> and you just kind of throw the the idol into it at the end, and it just like disappears. I'm kind of like th- that description in itself feels foreshadowy, honestly. Yeah, it's oh my god! Can you imagine if someone like goes into the Virgins? That's is what that I want. The, give the me world weird poor stuff? <laughs> Yeah, is that, is that the world between worlds? Like, honestly, I it's don't another, know. <laughs> it's another access point. It's another access yeah. point. It's anyway. probably it's the same mechanism. I know it is. It's, <laughs> it's just be. all it is. Right? I don't know. It's just That's what Dave would say. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, no entrance into the world between worlds looks the same twice, I think. And I don't know. I just I love, 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 love the Sith temple underneath the Jedi temple and or Sith shrine, I should say. And it also gives a little bit more color to the war between the Jedi and the Sith, because obviously we know, you think about Malachor, Malachor is that, which is, uh, what's the, Pompeii Mm -hmm. meets Star Wars. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Love Malachor, but that's underground. Mm -hmm. And was that a virgins? Probably if there was a shrine there and people were fighting over it. So I feel like it actually was, and Maul might have even said that, now that I'm thinking about it. I don't remember, but... Be worth it to go rewatch Malachor. So oh, any excuse. <laughs> any excuse to rewatch Malachor. The visuals of it are just incredible. Yeah, I just, it, it really does paint a good picture. I, I think, you know, the, when we were younger watching the second trilogy for the first time, I kind of thought of, okay, this is, this is the Jedi Temple. Like, this is it. There's nothing else. 
<laughs> there's only the one. <laughs> and I think I think there is in the second trilogy era or like that it's I think it's pretty clear that this is like the headquarters of the Jedi obviously, but I like hearing more and more about how there are other Jedi temples. Obviously, we see Luke at a Jedi temple in The Last Jedi and in The Rise of Skywalker too. So this isn't new to Into the Dark. I'm still waiting for them to bring in Prime Jedi to a story because it feels like in this conversation about light and dark there was someone who was the bridge between both or or not or if it's it's a legendary figure that someone aspires to I'm not sure but I feel like it's it's surprising to me that it hasn't really been brought up more which means that I feel like they're saving it for a different story which is exciting in itself but I I just keep waiting for it (laughs) I think that whatever we see Prime Jedi of I think it will be some kind of union between two people yeah like i, think I mean that... maybe we already had that who knows <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know i think that like in my perfect world right of star wars like prime jedi would have been like that's that's the misconception is that it's one person when in reality it wasn't it was, it was two, two people, people. that yeah. were not completely light or dark but had both and had this union I feel like you could totally argue that that's what happened in The Rise of Skywalker. And, like, I think that you could walk out thinking that. And I just don't think it, like, necessarily was done super well. But I think that you you can argue that because of the way that the Force transferred from one to another. And it was, like, a combination of two that brought her back to life, you know? Yeah, I think you can. It's not what I would choose to do. Yeah, yeah, but it's possible. But, but yeah, I, I think the intention of that would be really good with uncovering the truth about the Prime Jedi through some story and then being able to parallel it to rank and ben who were kind of supposed to be this closing chapter Mm -hmm. of this story of the force right i think the intention i think the bones of that are kind of visible in rise of skywalker but not executed well obviously yeah we need we need some more meat but it's there yeah but it's definitely there i think it was there from the very from the force awakens Uh and certainly through the last jedi and stuff like that so i think that that would be if we're supposed to view the rise of Skywalker as like this closing chapter to then be able to parallel Ray and Ben, because at the end of the day, like Ben is the one who did the thing. He brought back the person he loved. Like that is, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to compare that then all, and like, they're supposed to be like the most powerful force users. And so to be able to compare that directly back to the first jedi or well-known force users who kind of establish themselves i think that would be really great me too also like on the topic of what a sith shrine is versus a jedi temple i also think that in the rise of skywalker we actually saw a glimpse of what a sith shrine would even look like in exegol with all those like crazy sith worshipers or whatever the heck that was how did around. they get there i don't know the darth vader <laughs> comic's gonna answer that i guess <laughs> stay they will. tuned where do they but- stay how do they eat <laughs> <laughs> but that felt shriny. You know what I mean? And oh, yeah. I feel like that was probably what they were getting at. I think that's even what it's referred to in the visual dictionary. And it's probably the vibe. Yeah, definitely. You know, like, is there a cafeteria there? I don't know. <laughs> they you feed know, off gotta... the dark. <laughs> 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 that's an advertisement for like Mixith Cafe. <laughs> anyway. I watching it the first time going, who are these people? How could they get get there, but everyone else can't? <laughs> okay, so I just wanted to bring up this thing from Comac on 
forced artifacts. Uh, just really a note before we leave this discussion, because I think we're going to move on. But I have to read you everything that they say about artifacts and like Sith temples. So thank you for listening. <laughs> and this is on page 187 in the hardcover. So Comex says, the Jedi elders have identified three main kinds of forced artifacts, he said to the assembled group in the comm area. There are artifacts that contain certain memories or even personalities of past Force users, which that could be interesting if there's ever something from the Prime Jedi that's in an artifact that gets discovered somewhere. That could be really fun. There are artifacts that enhance a Jedi's ability to use the Force, and then there are artifacts that hinder or confound that ability. Force dampeners, you could call them. Which, that reminds me of those creatures from Thrawn, Heir to the Empire. Yes, this is a Legends reference. <laughs> those, I've, they're called like yes, Yesalamiri, I can't say it. But they're creatures, they're not objects. But they're Force dampening creatures, which I suppose is different from an object. But... Same principle. A, yeah, same principle. Just something to know. I think that I, of course, really like the discussion of artifacts and idols and the fact that these idols probably did not come from a dark side user since they were keeping the plants dormant. So I don't know. Just more food for thought, if you will. Yeah, super interesting. I am, number one, shocked that you brought up legends, but I, I approve and I'm really happy that you did. I'm really shocked. I'm truly right? shocked. Right? Yeah. I, me um, too. <laughs> anyway, I wanted to talk about, before we moved on to our deeper theme section, I just wanted to give a shout out to our other characters that I don't think we gave enough love. Affy. We love Affy. I loved Affy. I know you did too. And I loved her storyline with like freeing and dismantling the indentured servants that she found out about and how she felt so deep in her heart that she needed to do that. I really loved the story. I loved Leox. thought he was awesome. I definitely could see the Matthew McConaughey vibe that Claudia yes. was going for. All right, all right. You call yeah, exactly. You you call Nan Nan, and I feel like that actually makes sense. But I read it as Nan, and I, yeah, I read it as both ways, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's fake. It's in space. Claudia can tell us what the pronunciation is, but I feel like I I really liked her too, and I definitely did trust her in the beginning. Which I, maybe I'm just too trusting in Star Wars books because this <laughs> happens to me all the time. <laughs> and I I definitely really liked this character and I want to see more of her. I want to see all of these characters again. Me too. I think that, again, Afi is the most active we've seen any Star Wars character in addressing slavery on a pretty large scale mm. in Star Wars, which I think is pretty incredible considering she's, what, 17, 18? Yeah. And I really hope we get to see more of her journey because it is really incredible that she takes the step to turn in her foster mom because mm -hmm. the whole first part of the book, the majority of the book, she is talking about how much she loves her foster mom, how well she's treated her, the close relationship they have, taking over from her when she's older, like nothing but respect and is so worried throughout the whole book when she thinks that something could have happened to her foster mom. And then when she discovers the truth, you know, she there's the part at the end where she says something like, you know, once I take over, I can make things better. And she has this really great point where she says, I can be patient, but all of these people who are indentured servants, slaves right now, they can't, they can't wait. And then she goes and makes the decision to turn them in. Like, I just think it honestly blew my mind. I kind of almost didn't expect it. 
And I was Me like, neither. this is the biggest action that we've seen, like I said, any character do in Star Wars, at least that I know of. Of course, we have like that. We talked about this in the first Padme book about the handmaiden who goes. It's Sabe. Sabe. Thank you. How she goes to do something about the slavery on Tatooine and she kind of hits a brick wall and doesn't go back. Other other things happen in the book, but it just that doesn't become the theme of the book uh, in the way that I kind of think a lot of us thought it might have been. But to see this from Affy was really great. And yeah, and then Nan, oh my God, loved her. I, I wish we had more time with her. Big fan rate energy, I thought, of the reveal that she's actually the Nile and she does not need anyone's help. I thought it was so great. Did you catch, there's the little moment in the beginning where Reith and Nan have a very similar Luke and Leia, A New Hope, crossing the threshold. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> she's doing this. <laughs> I highlighted it. I was like, oh, my God. It's funny because, like I said, I, I was surprised when she turned out to be Niall. I was like, oh, they're doing the thing. Like, she's going to be part of the group. And then I was like, oh, Claudia's subverting my expectations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Claudia. But it was really funny, actually. I was like, oh, this is cute. <laughs> yeah. Also, listen, I'm just going to put it out there. Like, I will ship Nan and Reef. I'll do that. Mm-hmm. I'll do it. Like, don't lie. A Nile and a Jedi getting together, that's good. That's good-ish yeah. there. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's pretty good. What's good about it is there's, like, an archivist Jedi who's interested in compiling information about the Nile, who gets too involved mm-hmm. in the Nile, and then is like, oh, no, I'm falling, and then is like, oh, wait, our loyalties, you know? I mean, that's great. <laughs> It's just solid. It's so great. And the way that she was like, I'll let you get away this time because you saved my life, but not again. I know. (laughs) So good. But for a while, I was like, oh, Affy Affy and Reed are going to have like a really fun, like little banter situation going on here. But then as soon as you turn on like bad, I'm like, well. (laughs) (laughs) We were already doing this. Here's where we are. The seeds are all here. <laughs> because, like, they talk about how Nan is kind of flirting with Reef, and Reef is like, I'm not a part of that. But yeah, as soon as she was like, I'll never, I, I'm so glad I don't pretend to be helpless anymore. And like, yes, I'm pointing this blaster at you, but you have like 10 seconds to get away. I was like, great, I'm here. I've arrived. <laughs> it really is like fan right. You're right about that. In Leia, Princess of Alderaan, for those who haven't read, and I feel like it's kind of a big spoiler that we just said, but it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> It's okay. The book has been out for a while. For a couple years now. Yeah. I, you know, I just spoiler culture is hard, but we have to talk about these things in conversation with each other. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's been out for a couple years. Anyway, okay, okay, okay. I really want to see more of Affy. I think she oh my god, I'm really obsessed with her. And then I really just want like a hardcore romance between Wreath and Nan. Be so good, so angsty. And uh yeah, that's that's that on that. Mm-hmm. Yep, great. Love the characters in this book. Yeah. And our first impressions. I think I mentioned this one more thing before we go to the next section. I loved the scene of like them all stumbling to get on the vessel. Wreath is late. And then, you know, Comac comes and then Orla comes. And then it's like all these people like all kind of stumbling together into this like weird ship with this weird cast of characters. And I got a real sense of like, oh, man, this is going to be a journey. And I love these characters already. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Let's move on to deeper themes. Okay, so welcome to part two where we're going to be discussing the deeper themes of Into the Dark. 
So let's start off with talking about experiencing the great disaster in this book. How was it different than experiencing it in all the other types of media that we've seen already? Because it feels like each of the new media in phase one of the High Republic definitely touched on the great disaster. So what did you think about that, Caitlin? I think it was kind of interspersed really well in this book because obviously they're not front and center on the great disaster the way that we see in Light of the Jedi. But it was like this trickle of information, right? It's a different kind of anxiety when you're put in that kind of situation where you don't know exactly what's going on. And in Light of the Jedi, people don't know what's going on there, but it's kind of very much in their faces as it's happening. Especially we talked about this like the first, I guess, like 100 pages of Light of the Jedi is all about the great disaster. And it, it gets a little tedious at the end there, but it's still pretty effective. But I really liked how particularly with Wreath, it becomes this realization that Jorah has died and what he's going to do with that information. Especially, I mean, we, we didn't really even talk about Des either, but Des I thought was really cool. It was really shocked when we thought he was dead. I was Same. like, oh, he Same. gone. I was like, oh, he just got sucked out. Like, oh, he's <laughs> disintegrated. <laughs> like, yeah, like, his disintegrating <laughs> butt. I reread it. I was like, did he just... Same. I was like, this can't be real, right? (laughs) And then it really wasn't. But (laughs) But he was just mind controlled by evil plants. So, you know, pros and cons, really. Speaking of evil plants, it must be said that I wonder if Claudia Gray is a really big Little Shop of Horrors fan because it felt like Audrey 2 was the main Drengear. The thing is, is that I feel like something that Little Shop of Horrors does really well, it's a comedy musical it's funny. It's great. I love Little Shop of Horrors. But it does something really well where it like tells like an earnest story throughout it while also being like, yo, there's this like murderous plant. And yes, we're singing about blood and this plant taking over and but wanting to take over the world. Pep in our step. Yes, but we got a pep in our step. And I feel like with this book, I'm not saying that it's the same tone, but there was this this feeling that I feel like there was this inspiration <laughs> that was taken from at least a little bit of Little Shop of Horrors of like, whoa, like this was crazy and beautiful and like the natural world, you know, that like there's definitely that element in this, the, na- the nature taking over the technological like sphere, the helix of it all. They mentioned that a lot of times, right? Yeah. And but then understanding that that nature is actually evil. This even like goes back to what we were talking about with Comac's like internal monologue about recognizing the dark and i think that that even can be transferred into our understanding of plants and their beauty in this book i suppose is you know we land on this you know helix that's filled with beautiful plants and a cool thing about this is that i don't think we mentioned this but we've seen this planet in the rise of kylo ren comic i thought that was the coolest connection great job charles soul because then I didn't even realize until I finished the book that we had seen this planet before. But I realized that I was that's what I was picturing already because I had it already in my subconscious. I don't know about you. But I was like, oh, yes, that's exactly what it was. How did I not make that connection before? I must have already kind of subconsciously made that connection. And anyway, just to go back to this theme of nature versus technology and then also good versus evil and acknowledging that humanity I don't know, like this is sort of theological, but thinking about whether or not like humanity is born evil or born good or born neutral and the acknowledgement of like, oh, maybe the nature itself isn't necessarily 
beautiful and good and pure. Maybe the nature itself isn't that and recognizing that. And then it's like, then what do you do with that? I think that like that that was an undercurrent that was felt throughout this entire book for me. Yeah, I think it's really interesting with the plants because we frequently have the conversation and Star Wars does too about like nature versus industry Mm -hmm. and machines and how usually it's presented as the nature is the good is Mm -hmm. pure, whereas this was not the case. (laughs) And I just kind of liked flipping it on its head because as we've been talking about, nothing is all good and all bad. And having these like plants that talk back and eat you and call you meat (laughs) <laughs> is is bad <laughs> yeah yep <laughs> it is bad i just thought it was like an interesting pushing of that theme that you're right i think it's probably the most prevalent in return of the jedi with the ewoks yeah. versus the empire yeah but it, at the core of star wars i think it really is like the scrappy versus the the hard industrial of it all like even the you know the rebel base in a new hope is covered in vines and very earthy versus the death star which is an technological marvel right and i i feel like you're right that it was it's just interesting that it was totally flipped on its head and of course it is because of the time period that we're in where certain things are flipped on their heads and like that's the purpose of that and then also when we reflect that back to what we see in the rise of kylo ren with snoke embodying this planet that reeks the dark side right what does that even mean (laughs) you know i don't know it's. I, I mean, I don't know either. It's just fun, kind of fun to play with that in our brains and kind of have that hint of like, okay, what was Snoke doing there? It, it's funny because I was really expecting when they returned to the planet to kind of return the idols and kind of ensnare the dark side again. I was really ex- expecting the Nile to arrive and then take that dark side power for themselves. And then it would be another step that the Nile had against the Jedi when oh. the eye was going to come back and be like, yo, this is how we're actually going to destroy the Jedi. And yes, I have this power. We have this power. Here here it is. Oh, that's interesting. I was really surprised that they didn't go that way. I was like, oh my God, like, let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it didn't happen. But that doesn't mean it can't happen later because we already know that this place is dark, you know? That's interesting. I don't think I think that the Nile will ever be foresee. I don't either. Because I think that's kind of the thing is that this non-Force user group is going to pose a pretty significant problem to the Jedi, and that's going to shock them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that would be interesting, like, if they ever got a Force user to become a Nile, that could be interesting. That could totally happen. Yeah. I feel like we actually yeah. are leading towards that with some of the characters, but I do feel like I, I'm with you and that I don't think the Nile are going to like touch the dark side, at least in a big way, unless they, they bring someone individually on. But I thought that that's where we were going with this idea of like harnessing power, releasing power and like whoever is around, then it, it traps them too. And I was like, okay, so what does that mean? Because I was, I was envisioning almost in Raiders of the Lost Ark when they open the Ark and, you know, all this yeah. evil is let out and then it, it, it you know, you don't look it in its eyes and then you're fine, I guess. But the <laughs> but everyone who is around is taken over by it. And I was just I was waiting for that to happen, at least for some of them. But I don't know. I, I like the story that was presented, but I definitely had all these different ideas about like what this planet what actually happen. means. Yeah. yeah. I think the High Republic is so cool because 
like we're we're watching all these characters and going, okay, which one of you is gonna fall? <laughs> and I think that it's weird because I'm like, yes, fall. <laughs> like, like I want to see <laughs> fall, it happen. Fall, fall. Yeah, but like, is that bad of me? I don't, I don't know. And even especially with Light of the Jedi, I think we we're like, oh, it's definitely gonna be Avar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's just too good. I it's I feel like that's still gonna happen. I think it still could and. And then in this book, seeing characters who are really much more than we saw in Light of the Jedi wrestling with how to follow the Force, just like in general, mm-hmm. <laughs> how to follow the Force, I think is much more introspective. And thinking about someone like, even if they don't fall to the dark side, but fall away from the Jedi, someone like, you know, if if Wreath and Nan end up together and flying away into the sunset, neither Nile nor Jedi, you know. I just I think it's it's really fascinating thinking about all these characters and going, okay, which one of you is gonna be the tipping point for the Jedi or as a whole, or what is going to be the je- the tipping point for you? Like is there a situation where there becomes like a mass exodus from the Jedi from whatever happens probably later down the line? Like that that could be really fascinating to watch too, because I think we're conditioned to think that, okay. You know, like Dooku left, but he was he was just the exception, not the rule. And that maybe there's like this hidden history of a time when the Jedi actually like so many Jedi walked out because mm-hmm. of something that happened in this time period. I don't know. I just something's gonna break, but something, it's, yeah. How and, big can the dam break, you know? Yeah, and what do you do? And they talk about this. I actually really am glad they talked about this in the book. I think it was Orla who brings it up where they're talking about, like, taking children, right? Mm-hmm. And we've mm-hmm. talked a lot about how that's, you know, not great. <laughs> and she makes the point to say, like, yeah, families volunteer to do this. Like, it's their choice. It's not the Jedi's choice. Which, again, there's a lot of dynamic, power dynamic that goes into something like that. But she did say that it is the family's choice to bring their child or to give their children to the Jedi Temple. And then they also talk about when they talk about way seekers having protocols about how there is a certain amount of danger and risk of letting people who are trained in the way that they're trained just kind of run wild with the power of the force, which I think is true, right? That there is a danger there. And I don't know. I think all these things, you're right. Like how big is the dam going to break? What does that mean for the Jedi down the line? I think what we see down the line is a lot more restrictive Jedi order. Yeah. And who's going to be the first lost 20? Who is someone going to like fall, fall to the dark side? And how are they going to explain why they memorialize them? Yes. I mean, that's the other thing. With Markeon Rowe? I don't don't know. Something's going to happen with Markeon. I mean, (laughs) to me, Markeon is like way too sexy for him to not be like a symbol in that regard. Like something's going to happen there. I just don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's just we we haven't the thing is all these Jedi have been with other Jedi, so when temptation has come up, they like talk it through with each other. And Orla and Comac have not about temptation but about grief. They have this conversation. Mm-hmm. And Comac is the one, uh, particularly after Dez dies and or they think Dez dies, and Comac is the one who's like, You just want me to move on? Like his life didn't mean anything. He didn't even die yeah. a hero. It was a fluke how he died. Like that's that's crazy. That's so awful. And Orla is the way seeker, is the one who's like no emotion is worth madness, I think is what she says. Something like that of you can't justify everything because it could lead you to madness. Something like that. I don't remember exactly what she says, but 
having these conversations, like I, what we see between Anakin and Obi-Wan later down the line is Obi-Wan going, don't think that. <laughs> Whereas Orla and Comac have the conversation of how do I, how do I do this? Well, you know, that's not true though, because like Anakin and Obi-Wan do have a different relationship and like they talk about Padme in Attack of the Clones and he's like, when Anakin's like, I've been dreaming of her every night. And Obi-Wan's <laughs> like, I'm not going <laughs> to spend too much time on that. <laughs> but I think, you know, compared to like Barris and Luminara, I think Barris and Luminara is a much more restrictive, strict Jedi master and apprentice relationship. I don't know. It's just kind of cycling through these thoughts in my head of where are all these people going to end up and when's the dam going to break? It's great. <laughs> it's, it's really fun. <laughs> and isn't it weird that we're just, that's, that's the thesis statement here. Like, isn't it weird that we're waiting for the dam to break? Like we're eagerly kind of anticipating it, which I guess is the whole point of fiction and like watching things fall apart so that they can come back together and that ultimately some of these things are better off broken because they're, it's just a bandage over like a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. But yeah, anyway. That's my monologue. Let's talk about other major themes in this book. I think that as a YA book, it really does tie to coming of age and that idea of independence. And I thought this book did something kind of brave in talking about how independence and experiencing independence doesn't necessarily mean loneliness. And I think that's what you were right in talking about how Wraith's journey is really impressive because he really does come so far. And I think that that awakening and that knowledge is so important for young people and people I mean I still consider myself like 18 at heart so I feel like that's how I think about myself so yeah I feel like that's exactly the message that I need to hear too that independence literally does not necessarily mean loneliness it can be a part of it but it's not always and also I feel like when we talk about the Kyber Bridge which I'm going to bring up in a second but I think it was really necessary that Wreath understand that Independence is separate from loneliness, but it's also part of exploring new friendships. And I feel like when it comes to the Kyber Bridge metaphor, I thought that was so good. When that was introduced in the beginning, I was like, okay, I don't really get it. (laughs) Is it going to be super obvious? Like, he needs some friends. And then it ended up actually being pretty obvious that, like, the only way he can cross the Kyber Bridge is with the confidence that comes from accepting his own independence and realizing that it's about togetherness as well about friendship and being selfless and just like honestly the ways of the jedi the the main jedi principles and i thought it was really cool i really liked the idea of the kyber bridge and i i want to see it in art and i thought it was really nice because caitlin and i specifically caitlin is really obsessed with crystals that like sun catcher crystals that you put up to the sun and then they reflect and refract rainbows on your your space and everything and she got me one she got our friends some and i bought so many it's crazy <laughs> but you know in in quarantine working from home it's like the small things anyway i highly recommend them i know caitlin does too but the kyber arch has a lot of rainbow crystals too <laughs> and when nice. the sun reflected on it there was rainbows that were produced and i just wanted to mention that because it's a big deal. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you did. Guys, I'm not kidding. My Suncatcher crystals were probably my favorite purchase of 2020. Like, <laughs> I love them so much. Like, there really is just such joy in seeing, like, a pretty little rainbow in your space. Anyway, they're perfect. Highly, I just bought, like, an expensive, like, homemade, handmade Suncatcher crystal from a seller on Instagram. Anyway, yeah, Amazon literally asked me if I wanted to start buying them in bulk. That's how many oh I God. bought over the past year for different people. And if Fair you right. follow me on Twitter, you're like, 
I'm here. I'm arrived. I know about your Suncatcher Crystal obsession, Caitlin, but I don't think I've really shared it on the podcast. <laughs> but it's real. It's alive. Today was the first sunny day in like almost two weeks that we've had here in Georgia. And when I, I saw the sun shining through my blinds this morning and I was like, oh my God, rainbows. <laughs> like I've missed them. Anyway, I do think that, thank you for bringing up the the Kyber Arch. I think the Kyber Arch is like this like beautiful thing because right, it's like when the sun hits it and you get these rainbows, right? It's beautiful and it's like this moment of reflection of like like you said, like just to notice the little things, like this color, this sparkle. But the knowledge is that all of like that Kyber crystal is there, that light, that color, that beauty is there because someone is gone. Mm. And there's like that balance of loss and light. I think that's kind of represented in the Kyber Arch in that sense and the fact that it's a bridge too of like crossing it alone, but you're not actually alone because the thing that's supporting you is the history and the forced connection to all of those who have come before you who have lost their lives for the greater good or who have passed on. Like, I don't know. I think the the Kyber, the Kyber Arch is such like a cool concept and i hope that one day we do get to see concept art of it and uh its connection to rainbow crystals on a personal level for both of us is very very good so (laughs) i thought it was interesting because at the end of the book i think it's chancellor so who talks about she's giving a speech at the opening of the starlight beacon and she says we learned independence is an illusion that no one truly stands alone And I feel like that really reflected back upon the theme that Wreath really learned in this entire book about how no one really does truly stand alone. And I feel like, again, this is a theme that's present in all of Star Wars, like basically from the last like the the loneliness that is present in the sequel trilogy itself is in realizing that no one is alone, right? That you have a partner, that you have a friend, that you have a family, a a Jedi Order, a a master, an apprentice, all these things. So I find that I liked that theme. I thought it was good for the YA genre. And I think it speaks back to Jorah's original, neither you or nor any other Jedi will cross the Kyber Arch alone, nor will anyone ever do so. When you know the answer why, I believe you'll understand why we're headed to the frontier. And that idea of togetherness and like, you know, growth, I think is really important. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was really great. And it's like, of course, right, Reef can't cross it until the end of the book uh-huh. because of everything that he's gone through ahead of time. And I love that in the middle of it, too, he's like, is it when he asks Des, he's like, hey, have you have you like yeah. crossed that bridge like alone? And Des is like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and Reith has this internal monologue of like, see, told you, Jorah, like, Jez can do it. I can do it. What are you talking about? And then he gets to the end. He's like, oh, oh, I, like, I get it now. And it's like serious and it's somber because now he's gone through all these things thinking he lost Jez, thinking he lost Jorah or actually losing Jorah and having to go through it on his own. I think in the conversation of like independence and like growing up and wreath in particular, I thought a really interesting part of this book was when he comes back and in the middle of, I think like the, the beginning of beginning of the end of the book, when Des and Jorah are both believed dead, when Des is believed dead. And the council basically tells wreath that he can make the next step. He can make the next choice of who he wants to go with, what he wants to do. If he wants to stay on Coruscant, go back to the frontier Like, it's basically up to him. 
which I think he was really surprised at. And I was really surprised at coming from the council because the council has its acknowledgement of his grief of like, you've gone through a lot, like take some time (laughs) to figure it out. And again, this is a difference that I don't think we would necessarily see in the second trilogy era as explicitly as we're seeing here with Reith. And also like in the conversation of independence of Reith having to make that choice for himself coming out of this really hard experience at the space station and then also losing two very important people that he has a pretty big connection to, especially his master Jor, who does ultimately like stay dead, <laughs> unlike Des. And I just thought that that was like in the in the conversation of independence and growing up, like having to make these kind of big, difficult choices is a big piece of that. And Reith made that choice. And not only did he make the choice about like going to Comac as a master, but he also made the choice to stray indirectly from the Jedi Council's recommendations and go back to get non. Mm-hmm. So yeah. anyway, this is a Reith podcast. <laughs> it's a Reith stan account. It's a Reith stan I- account. I agree. (laughs) You said it. (laughs) Okay, so let's move in. I think we talked a lot about the dark side and the the Jedi and the way that the division of the Force is in part one. So I think we're ready to move into part three where we're going to give each other quotes to react to. Let's go. Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Women always figure out the truth. Always. Okay, welcome to part three, where we're going to be giving each other quotes to react to back and forth. I don't remember who went first last time, so you can go first this time, Charlotte. Okay. Are you ready for your first one? It's on page 19. Here's the quote. He wondered whether that might be dangerous for Master Komak, who is known to be highly sensitive to the Force. Going someplace so wild would surely expose them all to influences none of them had ever dreamed of. Interesting quote pool. I actually highlighted the first right above that where they're talking about Comac as a folklorist. <laughs> I was like, oh, she's going to read that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to read that too. But you can, you can react to that as well. <laughs> I think I had forgotten actually about this line of Master Comac, who is known to be highly sensitive to the force. Mm-hmm. And this really goes back to kind of everything we've been discussing with him throughout this episode of his kind of emotional tendencies and his turmoil about, you know, the division of the dark side and the light side, what his choice is, especially at the end of the book, he, when he's talking to Orla and he says, and Orla is like, I need to step away from the Jedi Council for a little bit and or the order. And Comac says, I need the order now more than ever. But then he caveats it by saying, and something else too. Which I think goes really well with this quote here of going someplace so wild would surely expose them all to influences none of them had yet dreamed of. And that is what happens. And I think very much like the experience that Comac and Orla have 25 years prior that kind of becomes a pillar in Comac's life, like a before and after kind of moment. I think that everything that happens in this book is a before and after kind of thing for Comac. And and for all of them, too. But I think that there's a lot of foreshadowing in this little chunk here of what's going to be coming down the line, specifically for Comac. Yeah, absolutely. I thought the verbiage of he was highly sensitive to the Force was interesting because in the prequel trilogy, and I think, honestly, in all of the movies, we just hear strong in the Force. They have a high midi-chlorian count. They're really strong in the Force. But we don't hear the word sensitive. and. I think that that is nice 
to hear <laughs> in this weird way. I appreciate this emphasis on feelings and emotions and uh, like an understanding of some people feel things differently than others versus strength and kind of the gamification of Jedi in terms of like warlords, which they do become. And it made me like, even like just even talking about it now, it makes me like Comac even more, even after our conversation where I said I really liked him. <laughs> but I just, I don't know. I like the, I like the term highly sensitive. It reminds me of even highly sensitive people who that's like a, a, a type of person who is very reactionary to a lot of different ways. And I think that that's definitely what Comac is. And it's kind of this internal battle for him to try to deal with that, I suppose. Yeah, I agree. All right. Are you ready for your first quote? Yes. All right. Page 153. Okay. Okay. So kind of the whole page, but especially mm. <laughs> <laughs> just talking about the dark side and everything. But particularly in the end where it says it's written, you assume, Comac replied, that because every such artifact we know of has its origins in the Jedi or the Sith, that only Jedi or Sith could create one. We cannot make such assumptions. Others have possessed the power and the force. I like this. I feel like any I think you already talked about this and how like any time that Star Wars can acknowledge that the force doesn't belong to the Jedi or the Sith in the same way that Luke says in The, the Last Jedi the better and stronger the ethos and mythos of the force is to me like the democratizing the force is like it's just interesting and again this goes to like how great Comac is <laughs> this, this yeah. is becoming a like Comac is a really interesting character <laughs> kind he of is, podcast. He is. <laughs> but he has a lot of great lines and I think this is one of them this conversation is really good too I think that at the top of the page, it says darkness resides within the station as a very different, quote, feel from the kind of normally sense planets deep in the dark side. This means we cannot determine its source. And it's like, it's interesting to even consider that during the High Republic, they could determine their source, right? That they weren't clouded. And I, I think that that's like a a headache of the prequels is like hearing Yoda talk about how everything is clouded. 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 Yeah. And it's like, no, wow, they could actually determine the source of a dark side something. Wow. Surprising. Like Yoda unclouded. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get a dehumidifier unclouded. <laughs> yeah. I think that, yeah, we, we did kind of already talk about this earlier on, which I seem to do a lot when we pull quotes. So I apologize for that. But I think that one of the other things that I think is important in this conversation with Comac is that he's telling Wreath and Orla this. And this is something that is not really being taught to the Jedi on a large scale, which is similar to what Orla says about the Sith Temple shrine, that not many people know that that Sith shrine is underneath the Jedi Temple. And it's kind of like, why is this being hidden? And of Comac having to remind Wreath and Orla, like, hey, FYI, you're not the only Force user out there. Like, the Jedi is not the only way, or the Sith. It's not either or. And the fact that he's having to tell Jedi that, I think, is telling. And, yeah, the whole, like, this whole page of them just kind of going through their theories about what's going on on this station and not really seeing the Force through the trees and assuming that, the darkness has to be coming from this idol, this artifact, because that's what they've experienced before, when in fact the exact opposite is true. And 
It just, you know, all depends on a certain point of view. And you read this now knowing what you know about the end of the book. And it's like, Comac, you're so close. You're almost there <laughs> with these idols and what's going on here. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for your second quote? Yes. Okay. So this is on page 37, but I really wanted to start on 36. And it's at the bottom of the page. Wreath and Comac are kind of discussing their own methodologies about how they gather data and different cultures and study different things. So Wreath asks, excuse me, Master Vitus, may I ask you how you go about discovering and recording new legends? As a folklorist, I mean, I just find the the local wise woman asks for a story. Sometimes Comac gazed out the window of one of the vessel's very few small windows in the brilliant, eerie blue of hyperspace. Often it's more complicated. There are always the stories people want to tell about themselves. And then there are other stories, the secret ones, the dark ones, the ones whose meaning are more difficult to comprehend. Those aren't the ones they offer to outsiders. Of course, those are generally the most important of all. Yeah, this is like super true. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think, yeah, I think that this is this is what we see in the real world like wreath's first thing here of like do you just go and find a local wise person and you know ask for a story and i wouldn't recommend doing that i think i think like like when you look at like early anthropology and stuff that's basically what they did is these anthropologists who had time and money would just go to these places that they considered barbaric and would stay there and write about what they saw and what they think that they're hearing. And also, I guess what people are telling them too, but probably not because like their communication is probably difficult in some of these places. And there's just like huge bias there. There's huge bias from the anthropologists, which is a huge problem historically in the real world. But then it's interesting what Comac talks about, like what is coming directly from whatever planet they're on, which is very true too. And I think really gets into the idea of like propaganda coming from countries. And I think this is very much a real world application too of the version of yourself, of your country, of your people that you want to present to the world is all well and good, but it's those darker things that you actually need to talk about because that's probably indicative of how you are what you are as a culture, as a society, whatever it is. And I think that Knowing like Comac as a folklorist, I guess as like an anthropologist in the Star Wars galaxy, I think is really interesting, especially like we talked about this with Light of the Jedi of the whole idea, like the the colonizing aspect of it, of the Republic going out to these so-called outer rim planets of, okay, well, who's calling it the outer rim? And again, like what's your bias? It's kind of like with maps, right? Like you call something north up up we kind of associate with good south we associate with bad and so like when you put an equator on the globe that's a circle that's not actually up or down and you Mm -hmm. start viewing things as below you you start building like these kind of implicit biases and that's like what happened (laughs) historically Mm -hmm. and that's what we see happening with the republic and you know calling coruscant the capital of the galaxy okay like who's calling it that why do you get to decide and so there's like that double-edged sword with comac of is it good to record things? Yes, obviously, it's good to record history. And to have a place like the Jedi Temple that it's kind of centralized is not an inherently bad thing. But 
like, I don't know. It's I think it's just a really complicated topic and there are so many risks associated with it and how to do things respectfully and genuinely and telling a whole picture of what's going on in a society is really difficult to do. It's impossible for one person to do. And usually you can only do it when you're far removed from it, like many decades later and someone else can like look at it for you. It's called historiography of studying how history was written and all of the biases that are there. And I think that this is kind of what Comac is getting at here, but it just, I was like, oh yeah, I, yeah, I relate to this. Like I understand it. It's not something I feel like I talk about really well because it is like so complicated, but I'm glad that they kind of brought it up in this book because this whole discussion of what the Republic is doing in the galaxy is one that I, I, continues to need more discussion in this book of kind of the colonizing aspect of it. And even like Comac, like you said, right, is the person who is kind of the most vocal about the Republic in this book. The Republic as a whole is not a huge topic in this book, but Comac is the one that talks about it the most. So him being like, I'm a folklorist who goes out, gets information, brings it back to the core world for the Republic, for the Jedi. Like that's a lot of bias there. And I'd like to think that a Jedi like Comac knows his bias but i haven't read his work either (laughs) (laughs) that's funny the thing is is that with this quote i actually took it in a more meta sense of when you see something on the surface a story presents itself but what's more interesting is the backstory is the dark story is the undertone and later comac gives the advice to des and wreath he says while you're waiting study their art paintings tapestries literature symbolism and allegory can reveal a lot Then you ask about the art and the legends come up naturally. I really liked this line because anytime you see, honestly, some sort of meta understanding of like, study the art, study the literature. It's like, that's exactly what we're doing right now in in the form of this podcast, right? Yeah. And and we're trying to get to whatever the dark underbelly of this story is. I mean, the book is called Into the Dark, right? And we're, what are we barreling towards? And what is the dark underbelly of the story? And that slowly gets revealed. Like, this is page 37. We're still really early, right? And I think that you're you're so right about your interpretation. There's nothing wrong about it at all. I'm not saying that. I just I think it's it's cool that we take two separate interpretations of it. Where for me, I I feel like Claudia is like calling out like as a fan of Star Wars. It's like we yeah the the stories that you want to see you see them, but also the stories that are kind of hard to get at or the stories that require a second glance. The stories that require like further diving deep into it or yielding the legends that come out of him. And I think that that's exactly what like we do as Star Wars fans of like archiving like our favorite parts about it and diving deeper and studying the symbolism and studying studying the allegory in order to understand what's actually going on at a at a deeper level than just on the surface, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think and I think that's the point too of like that's applicable in Star Wars and in the real world. Absolutely. As well of how even looking at our history books that we had in school and what they did and didn't include. It's totally. the things that they didn't include that you probably want to pay attention to or find find out about, learn about. And that's like true with the with the Jedi at this time too. Like Comac needs to do his own study on the Jedi and the things that they're not talking about. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, art is good. I wonder, I do want to know more about like more artists in the Jedi. Well, this is. I'm glad that you brought this up because in like the discussion of the overall story of the High Republic, something I think is so cool is the Lor Santeca, the Santeca relation of yeah. it all that was presented. Of it in, all, 
<laughs> in in light of the Jedi, right? I yeah. feel like that's even that's a secret story that the Santecas are holding on to is the fact that they have a family member who is trapped with the Nile, who is like a wayfinder, someone who is finding different routes, and that's how the Nile are navigating around. That's a dark story. And how when is that going to be revealed, right? And how are maybe maybe Wreath and Comac are going to help discover something about that in the future by diving deeper into symbolism and the art that is infinitely present on Naboo of all places where the Santecas are. So I, it, it would be interesting if that comes up because if anyone is going to play detective with that and figure out something, it's going to be them, you know? Yeah. It just, yeah, because, I mean, it's not that we don't have art in Star Wars. Like, obviously, we have Sabine, who's an artist. And the fact that we even have, like, idols here. Like, this is an artifact. This is art. Uh, someone made these idols in a very specific way for a specific reason. And even, like, Thrawn and collecting this stuff. I don't know. I just, like, is there a museum in the Jedi Temple, too? Like, who is creating art as social commentary <laughs> to what's yeah. going on? You know, right. you think about, like, the Grand Salon in, like, Paris and stuff, and, and yeah. you know, in the in the 18th and 17th centuries. And that was, that was like, just social commentary. It was all political. Yeah. <laughs> who's doing that now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But who's doing that now? <laughs> in, in Star Wars, you mean? Yeah, I, I don't know. Because it's interesting, because Palpatine's office in the prequels is like littered with social commentary it's even you dive deep into it and it's it's the the medieval wars of the sith versus the jedi and yeah. it's cool to think about that and i i do think that someday we're going to get those kind of stories and i never thought we'd get a protagonist who was a library nerd who was who wasn't jocasta new i guess <laughs> and and also like a master who was also really into folklore like uh, those kind of things i just never really expected from star wars before so i do think that someday we'll get it in the social commentary artist i mean palo story when that's why he and padme couldn't be together <laughs> oh palo <laughs> well, I forgot all about him. <laughs> you can't forget about Paolo. You can't. It's a crucial can't. conversation. It's a crucial conversation. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of really nice to have this like main story about archivists and historians and librarians and stuff. And I feel like, of course, I'm trying to be like the real world. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you can't not, especially in stories that are written now where authors have explicitly talked about their own influences that are inspired by the real world too so it's fun to do that yeah yeah okay are you ready for your last quote yes all right go to page 14 i feel like we really concentrated on the beginning of the book here it's just like a, like a, a breeding ground for what theme. was to come yeah. yeah yeah okay all right this is wreath at his going away party and at the near the bottom of the page it writes the amateur band a few apprentices have put together had actually practiced for once which meant they sounded pretty good he smiled, he danced, he drank certain beverages that, while not technically forbidden, were frowned upon for Padawans his age. A small measure of indulgence wasn't necessarily a bad thing, his master had said. Such celebrations could be embraced when they brought people together in communion and harmony. I love this <laughs> because I was really pumped that there was even an excuse for Jedi getting drunk. I just think it's fun, and it's fun that Claudia would include this, that yeah. 
Jedi are allowed to like let loose because we know they are because Obi-Wan was like, I'm going for a drink in, in Attack of the Clones, you know, and his Padawan wasn't. And I think it's funny that this is explicitly written and something that is given like props, you know? Yeah, I just I loved kind of the last sentence of that. There's nothing like particularly deep about it, but they're just like, you know, it's like communion and harmony balance if you will it's good go ahead have a shot (laughs) well i think that it's it's interesting because in terms of the comparison to monks right yeah i can't really remember but i assume that monks they took a vow of chastity but i don't think they took a a vow of no alcohol so i feel like the idea that you have these jedi who like don't have a little bit of fun isn't really um represented in in the story like we don't see that we see jedi who have fun we see jedi who have like who kind of goof off on their missions we see that in in the clone wars we see it even in re- the beginning of revenge of the Sith. like that's a fun rick roll in time you know and i i feel like <laughs> and i feel like that's it's not even though we think about the jedi as the so many like so much of it is like the have nots of it of it all i do yeah. feel like it's nice to know that the jedi have some sort of like yeah you're allowed to get a drink with your friends at the end of the day if you're celebrating it does promote like unity and harmony and togetherness which is the ultimate theme of this book as we've talked about yeah i think that's true yeah i just thought it was fun the jedi at a party at the temple like who would have thought it is fun i actually have can we just do one more one more just please it'll be <laughs> yes. really quick okay <laughs> yeah so turn to page 351. Okay. Okay, so it's in the middle of the page. There is no righteousness in slaying an enemy, Master Jora scolded within Wreath's mind. Killing is never true victory. At best, it is the knowledge that you have done what you must. I have done what I must, Master, he whispered. It seemed possible that perhaps in the cosmic force, she could hear. <sighs> this is This is like all part of... You know, we ended on like a happy note of like, I'm sorry. Oh, Marty. We had to talk about this. I'm sorry. It was too good. Let's have a party. And now you've brought it down. Mm-hmm. You brought the energy. <laughs> Classic. Classic Charlotte. <laughs> Me. Let's go get a drink, Charlotte. So death and the so force. Tragedy. You know what they say Star Wars is tragedy. Star Wars is tragedy. Yeah, this quote, I love this because this is this is just like a culmination of all of kind of everything Wreath has gone through in this book to the fact now where he like knows that Des is alive, but Jorah is gone. And this is like, you know, in the beginning of the book when they've got those hooligans on the station and he severs the arm of one of them and he like he's very distraught about having to do that. And he has this whole conversation with Dez where he's like, I can't believe I did that. That was so awful. Why did I have to do that? Like this whole thing. And Dez is like, dude, chill. Like you did what you had to do. And that was your last option. Like the alternative was him taking Nam. And did you want that? And Reed is like, no. And he has to go through this whole thing of like making the hard choice. And then when he gets to this moment where it's not severing an arm, it's taking a life and he hears Jora coming back to him and having to like justify it to himself. I don't want to say justify it, but reconcile what he just did. Like he he's confident that he made the right choice here 
where he wasn't in the beginning of the book. And you can argue if it was the right choice or not. And Jora, of course, like points out that like killing is not like we shouldn't rejoice. Like that's not a victory in any sense of the word. It's doing what you have to do. And mm-hmm. Wreath in the beginning of this book would not have been able to do this that he does here at the end. And it's that acknowledgement of like I've grown. I did what I had to do. And I didn't want to, but it had to happen. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's good. It's somber. It's a somber moment. Yeah, I think it also represents how far the Jedi have come in the second trilogy. Because, I mean, they've fallen, not come, fallen. Because this isn't even really thought about. At least I don't think. Like, this meaningful discussion, this acknowledgement of killing is something that needed to be done, but isn't something that should be glorified. I think that there's, you know, a school of thought that would say that the Jedi during the Clone Wars time period have become way too entangled with war and being soldiers and mindless killing that comes from fighting like robots that are a huge army and everything. But then it's transferred to like they're they're leaders and they're living, breathing human beings. And just even participating in war itself is something that the Jedi I don't think during this time are super interested in. I think they're interested in peace and pursuing peace, but there's this acknowledgement of like the Jedi or, or a legendary organization that are doing good, but hopefully like, you know, I mean, in, in the, in the prequels, it's a, a huge acknowledgement that they're going to join the war and going to help the Republic in their efforts here. And of course we know that that's for not because it's a huge, like puppeteering via Palpatine situation. And I just think that it's nice. This is a, just another acknowledgement of the fact that this era and these Jedi are different. And when we start here, how do we get to, when we start in point A, how do we get to Z when it comes to the prequels? And what has to change? Will there ever be this disacknowledgement of whether it's okay to kill, which is like even just crazy to even say out of my mouth, right? But it's Star Wars. So that's that's the way it goes. <laughs> Yeah, and it, it goes back to that conversation that the Jedi Council have in Light of the Jedi. Again, you're all poof, I think. I'm just going to really describe- brought it home. I- <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to bring everything back to you're all poof now from now on. Even if he doesn't say it, I'm going to be like, I'm pretty sure you're all poof can be quoted as saying such and such. <laughs> but in that chapter, that interlude in Light of the Jedi with Jorah that we read earlier, Yell Poof is the one who's like, the Jedi are two things, keepers of peace and justice. Peace without justice is tyranny, and justice without peace is something else. And like that's the balance they have to strike because they have this ability, this power, this weapon that they use, but you try not to use it unless you absolutely have to. It's a catch-22. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that completes... Our discussion of Into the Dark by Claudia Gray. I loved this book and I had such a fun time talking about it. Yeah, me too. It was a really good time talking about it and looking forward to the next installments from the High Republic. Uh, me too. Is it summer yet? Like, hello, I'm it's ready. Not. <laughs> it's not summer yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's very cold. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you want to find us online, you can head on over to Twitter at SkyTalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Clarity. We talk about Suncatcher Crystals frequently on our Twitters, me in particular. So 
(laughs) if you want more of that content, plus Star Wars, you can come there. Or you can head on over to our website, skytalkers.com, Instagram, or Facebook, and you will find us if you search Skytalkers. If you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, we would really appreciate it if you took a second or two to leave us a five-star review. It helps other people join in the conversation all about Star Wars with us. And if you're interested in other ways to support us or want to join our Discord community, you can head on over to Patreon and check out our reward tiers there. Yes, and I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons. Mike, Thomas, Daniel, Bridget, Bradley, Claire, Candace, Brad, Shelbo, Matthew, Captain Britton, Jackson, Carrie, Raphael, David, Joey, Nicole, and James. Thank you so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Mm-hmm.